welcome to Zensylvania. My name is Eric Adrians, and I'll be your host. In Zensylvania, we explore motorcycle zen, literature, philosophy, and a variety of other topics. I'm not an expert in any of these things. In fact, it would probably be a mistake for me to claim to be an expert in anything at all. Here in Zensylvania, we try to maintain a beginner's mind during our explorations. With your feedback and participation, I hope Pennsylvania is the kind of place that keeps us, you and I, visiting often. We are all strangers again. Folks, I just forgot the biggest gumption trap of all. The funeral procession. The one everybody's in. This hyped-up, fuck-you, super-modern, ego-style of life that thinks it owns this country. We've been out of it for so long, I'd forgotten all about it. We get into the stream of traffic going south, and I can feel the hyped-up danger close in. I see in the mirror some bastard is tailgating me and won't pass. I move it up to 75, and he still hangs in there. 95, and we pull away from him. I don't like this at all. The intermittent failure setback is next. In this, the thing that is wrong becomes right all of a sudden, just as you start to fix it. Electrical short circuits are often in this class. Get it to go wrong again, and if it won't, forget it. Intermittents become gumption traps when they fool you into thinking you've really got the machine fixed. It's always a good idea on any job to wait a few hundred miles before coming to that conclusion. They're discouraging when they crop up again and again, but when they do, you're no worse off than someone who goes to a commercial mechanic. In fact, you're better off. They're much more of a gumption trap for the owner who has to drive his machine to the shop again and again and never get satisfaction. On your own machine, you can study them over a long period of time, something a commercial machine can't do, and you can just carry around the tools you think you'll need until the intermittent happens again. And then, when it happens, stop and work on it. When intermittents recur, try to correlate them with other things the cycle is doing. Do the misfires, for example, occur only on bumps, only on turns, only on acceleration, only on hot days? These correlations are clues for cause and effect hypotheses. In some intermittents, you have to resign yourself to a long fishing expedition. But no matter how tedious that gets, it's never as tedious as taking the machine to a commercial mechanic five times. I'm tempted to go into long detail about intermittents I have known with a blow-by-blow description of how these were solved, but this gets like those fishing stories of interesting mainly to the fisherman, who doesn't quite catch on to why everybody yawns. He enjoyed it. And next to misassemblies and intermittents, I think the most common external gumption trap is the parts setback. Here, a person who does his own work can get depressed in a number of ways. Parts are something you never plan on buying when you originally get the machine. Dealers like to keep their inventory small. Wholesalers are slow and always understaffed in the spring when everybody buys motorcycle parts. Pricing on parts is the second part of the gumption trap. It's a well-known industrial policy to price the original equipment competitively because the customer can always go somewhere else, but on parts to overprice and clean up. 
The price of the part is not only jacked up way beyond its new price, you get a special price because you're not a commercial mechanic. The part may not fit. Parts lists always contain mistakes. Make and model changes are confusing. Out of tolerance parts runs sometimes get through quality control because there's no operating checkout at the factory. Some of the parts you buy are made by specialty houses who don't have access to the engineering data needed to make them right. Sometimes they get confused about make and model changes. Sometimes the parts man you're dealing with jots down the wrong number. Sometimes you don't give him the right identification, but it's always a major gumption trap to get all the way home and discover that a new part won't work. The parts traps may be overcome by a combination of a number of techniques. First, if there's more than one supplier in town, by all means, choose the one with the most cooperative partsman. Get to know him on a first name basis. Often he will have been a mechanic once himself and can provide a lot of information you need. Keep an eye out for price cutters and give them a try. Some of them have good deals. Auto stores and mail order houses frequently stock the commoner cycle parts at prices way below those of the cycle dealers. You can buy roller chain from chain manufacturers, for example, at way below the inflated cycle shop prices. Always take the old part with you to prevent getting a wrong part. Take along some machinist calipers for comparing dimensions. Finally, if you're exasperated as I am by the parts problem and have some money to invest, you can take up the really fascinating hobby of machining your own parts. I have a little 6 by 18 inch lathe with a milling attachment and a full complement of welding equipment, arc, heli-arc, gas, and mini-gas for this kind of work. With the welding equipment, you can build up worn surfaces with better than original metal and then machine it back to tolerance with carbide tools. You can't really believe how versatile that lathe plus milling plus welding arrangement is until you've used it. If you can't do the job directly, you can always make something that will do it. The work of machining a part is very slow and some parts such as ball bearings you're never going to machine, but you'd be amazed at how you can modify parts design so that you can make them with your own equipment. And if the work isn't nearly as slow or frustrating as a wait for some smirking partsman to send away to the factory. And the work is gumption building, not gumption destroying. To run a cycle with parts in it you've made yourself gives you a special feeling that you can't possibly get from strictly store-bought parts. Time now to consider some of the internal gumption traps that operate at the same time. As the course description of gumptionology indicated, this internal part of the field can be broken down into three main types of internal gumption traps. Those that block effective understanding, called value traps, those that block cognitive understanding, called truth traps, and those that block psychomotor behavior, called muscle traps. The value traps are by far the largest and the most dangerous group. Of the value traps, the most value rigidity. This is an inability to revalue what one sees because of a commitment to previous values. In motorcycle maintenance, you must rediscover what you do as you go. Rigid values make this impossible. The typical situation is that the motorcycle doesn't work. The facts are there, but you don't see them. You're looking right at them, but they don't yet have enough value. This is what Phaedrus was talking about. 
quality value creates the subjects and objects of the world. The facts do not exist until value has created them. If your values are rigid, you can't really learn new facts. This often shows up in premature diagnosis when you're sure you know what the trouble is, and then when it isn't, you're stuck. Then you've got to find some new clues, but before you can find them, you've got to clear your head of old opinions. If you're plagued with value rigidity, you can fail to see the real answers even when it's staring you right in the face because you can't see the new answer's importance. The birth of a new fact is always a wonderful thing to experience. It's dualistically called a discovery because of the presumption that it has an existence independent of anyone's awareness of it. When it comes along, it always has, at first, a low value. Then, depending on the value looseness of the observer and the value increases, either slowly or rapidly, or the value wanes and the fact disappears. The overwhelming majority of facts, the sights and sounds that are around us every second and the relationships among them and everything in our memory, these have no quality. In fact, have a negative quality. If they were all present at once, our consciousness would be so jammed with meaningless data, we couldn't think or act. So we pre-select on the basis of quality, or to put it in a Phaedrus way, the track of quality pre-selects what data we're going to be conscious of, and it makes the selection in such a way as to best harmonize what we are with what we are becoming. What you have to do if you get caught in this gumption trap of value rigidity is slow down. You're going to have to slow down anyway, whether you want to or not. But slow down deliberately and go over ground that you've been over before to see if the things you thought were important were really important and to, well, just stare at the machine. There's nothing wrong with that. Just live with it for a while. Watch it the way you watch a line when fishing and before long, as sure as you live, you'll get a little nibble, a little fact, asking in a timid, humble way if you're interested in it. That's the way the world keeps on happening. Be interested in it. At first, try to understand this new fact, not so much in terms of your big problem as for its own sake. That problem may not be as big as you think it is. And that fact may not be as small as you think it is. It may not be the fact you want, but at least you should be very sure of that before you send the fact away. Often, before you send it away, you will discover it has friends who are right next to it and are watching to see what your response is. Among the friends may be the exact fact you are looking for. After a while, you may find that the nibbles you get are more interesting than your original purpose of fixing the machine. When that happens, you've reached a kind of point of arrival. Then you're no longer strictly a motorcycle mechanic, you're also a motorcycle scientist. And you've completely conquered the gumption trap of value rigidity. The next one is important, isn't entirely separate from value rigidity, but one of the many causes of it. If you have a high valuation of yourself, then your ability to recognize new facts is weakened. Your ego isolates you from the quality reality. When the facts show that you've just goofed, you're not as likely to admit it. When false information makes you look good, you're likely to believe it. 
on any mechanical repair job, ego comes in for rough treatment. You're always being fooled. You're always making mistakes. And a mechanic who has a big ego to defend is at a terrific disadvantage. If you know enough mechanics to think of them as a group and your observations coincide with mine, I think you'll agree that mechanics tend to be rather modest and quiet. There are exceptions, but generally, if they're not quiet and modest at first, the work seems to make them that way and skeptical, attentive, but skeptical, but not egoistic. There's no way to bullshit your way into looking good on a mechanical repair job, except with someone who doesn't know what you're doing. I was going to say that the machine doesn't respond to your personality, but it does respond to your personality. It's just that the personality that it responds to is your real personality, the one that genuinely feels and reasons and acts rather than any false blown up personality images your ego may conjure up. These false images are deflated so rapidly and completely, you're bound to be very discouraged very soon if you've derived your gumption from ego rather than quality. If modesty doesn't come easily or naturally to you, one way out of this trap is to fake the attitude of modesty anyway. If you just deliberately assume you're not much good, then your gumption gets a boost when the facts prove this assumption is correct. This way you can keep going until the time comes when the facts prove this assumption is incorrect. Anxiety, the next gumption trap, is a sort of you're afraid to do anything at all. Often this, this gumption trap of anxiety, which results from over-motivation, can lead to all kinds of errors of excessive fussiness. You fix things that don't need fixing and chase after imaginary ailments. You jump to wild conclusions and build all kinds of errors into the machine because of your own nervousness. These errors, when made, tend to confirm your original underestimation of yourself in a self-stoking cycle. The best way to break this cycle, I think, is to work out your anxieties on paper. Read every book and magazine you can on the subject. Your anxiety makes this easy, and the more you read, the more you calm down. You should remember that it's peace of mind you're after, and not just a fixed machine. When beginning a repair job, you can list everything you're going to do on little slips of paper, which you then organize into proper sequence. You discover that you organize and then reorganize the sequence again and again as more and more ideas come to you. The time spent this way in time saved on the machine and prevents you from doing fidgety things that create problems later on. You can reduce your anxiety somewhat by facing the fact that there isn't a mechanic alive who doesn't louse up a job once in a while. The main difference between you and the commercial mechanic is that when they do it, you don't hear about it. Just pay for it. In additional costs prorated through all your bills. When you make the mistake yourself, you at least get the benefit of some education. Boredom is the next gumption trap that comes to mind. This is the opposite of anxiety and commonly goes with ego problems. Boredom means you're off the quality track. You're not seeing things freshly. You've lost your beginner's mind and your motorcycle is in great danger. Boredom means your gumption supply is low and must be replenished before anything else is done. When you're bored, stop, go to a show, turn on the TV, call it a day, do anything but work on the machine. If you don't stop, the next thing that happens is the big mistake. 
And then all the boredom, plus the big mistake, combined together in one Sunday punch to knock all the gumption out of you, and you are really stopped. My favorite cure for boredom is sleep. It's very easy to get to sleep when bored, and very hard to get bored after a long rest. My next favorite is coffee. I usually keep a pot plugged in while working on the machine. If these don't work, it may mean deeper quality problems are bothering you and distracting you from what before you. The boredom is a signal that you should turn your attention to these problems. That's what you're doing anyway. And control them before continuing on the motorcycle. For me, the most boring task is cleaning the machine. It seems like such a waste of time. It just gets dirty again in the first time you ride it. John always kept his BMW spick and span. It really did look nice, while mine's always a little ratty, it seems. That's the classical mind at work. Runs fine inside, but looks dingy on the surface. One solution to boredom on certain kinds of jobs, such as such as grease and oil changing and turning, is to turn them into a kind of ritual. There's an aesthetic to doing things that are unfamiliar and another aesthetic to doing things that are familiar. I have heard that there are two kinds of welders, production welders who don't like tricky setups and enjoy doing the same thing over and over again, and maintenance welders who hate it when they have to do the same job twice. The advice was that if you hire a welder, make sure which kind he is, because they're not interchangeable. I'm in the latter class, and that's probably why I enjoy troubleshooting more than most and dislike cleaning more than most. But I can do both when I have to, and so can anyone else. When cleaning, I do it the way people go to church. Not so much to discover anything new, although I'm alert for new things, but mainly to reacquaint myself with the familiar. It's nice sometimes to go over familiar paths. Zen has something to say about boredom. Its main practice of just sitting has got to be the world's most boring activity, unless it's that Hindu practice of being buried alive. You don't do anything much, not move, not think, not care. What could be more boring? Yet in the center of all yet in the center of all this boredom is the very thing Zen Buddhism seeks to teach. And what is it? What is it at the very center of boredom that you're not seeing? Impatience is close to boredom, but always results from one cause, an underestimation of the amount of time the job will take. You never really know what will come up, and very few jobs get done as quickly as planned. Impatience is the first reaction against a setback and can soon turn to anger if you're not careful. Impatience is best handled by allowing an indefinite time for the job, particularly new jobs that require unfamiliar techniques. By doubling the allotted time when circumstances force time planning, and by scaling down the scope of what you want to do, overall goals must be scaled down in importance and immediate goals must be scaled up. This requires value flexibility, and the value shift is usually accompanied by some loss of gumption. But it's a sacrifice that must be made. It's nothing like the loss of gumption that will occur if a big mistake caused by impatience occurs. My favorite scaling down exercise is cleaning up nuts and bolts and studs and trapped holes. And tapped holes. I've got a phobia about crossed or jimmied or rust jammed or dirt jammed threads that cause nuts to turn slow or hard. 
and when I find one, I take its dimensions with a thread gauge and calipers and get out the taps and dies, recut the threads on it, then examine it and oil it, and I have a whole new perspective on patience. Another one is cleaning up tools that have been used and not put away and are cluttering up the place. This is a good one because one of the first warning signs of impatience is frustration not being able to is frustration at not being able to lay your hand on the tool you need right away. If you just stop and put tools away neatly, you will both find the tool and also scale down your impatience without wasting time or endangering the work. I want to talk now about truth traps and muscle traps and then stop the Chautauqua for today. Truth traps are concerned with data that are apprehended and are within the boxcars of the train. For the most part, these data are properly handled by conventional dualistic logic and the scientific method talked about earlier, back just after Miles City. But there's one trap that isn't, the truth trap of yes-no logic. Yes and no, this or that, one or zero, elementary two-term discrimination, all human knowledge is built up. The demonstration of this is the computer memory which stores all its knowledge in the form of binary information. It contains ones and zeros, and that's all. Because we're unaccustomed to it, we don't usually see that there's a third possible logical term equal to yes and no, which is understanding in an unrecognized direction. We don't even have a term for it, so I'll have to use the Japanese mu. Mu means no thing. Like quality, it points outside the process of dualistic discrimination. Mu simply says, no class, not one, not zero, not yes, not no. It states that the context of the question is such that a yes or no answer is in error and should not be given. Unask the question is what it says. Mu becomes appropriate when the context of the question becomes too small for the truth of the answer. When the Zen monk Joshu was asked whether a dog has a Buddha nature, he said Mu, meaning that if he answered either way, he was answering incorrectly. The Buddha nature cannot be captured by yes or no questions. That Mu exists in the natural world investigated by science is evident. It's just that, as usual, we're trained not to see it by our heritage. For example, it's stated over and over again that computer circuits exhibit only two states, a voltage for one and a voltage for zero. That's silly. Any computer electronics technician knows otherwise. Try to find a voltage representing one or zero when the power is off. The circuits are in a mu state. They aren't at one, they aren't at zero. They're in an indeterminate state that has no meaning in terms of ones or zeros. Readings of the voltmeter will show, in many cases, floating ground characteristics in which the technician isn't reading characteristics of the computer circuits at all, but characteristics of the voltmeter itself. What's happened is that the power-off condition is part of a context larger than the context in which the one-zero states are considered universal. The question of one or zero has been unasked. And there are plenty of other computer conditions besides a power off condition in which mu answers are found because of larger context than the one zero universality. The dualistic mind tends to think of mu occurrences in nature as a kind of contextual cheating or irrelevance. But mu is found throughout all scientific investigation and doesn't cheat. 
and nature's answers are never irrelevant. It's a great mistake, a kind of dishonesty, to sweep nature's mew answers under the carpet. Recognition and valuation of these answers would do a lot to bring logical theory closer to experimental practice. Every laboratory scientist knows that very often his experimental results provide new answers to the yes-no questions the experiments were designed for. In this case, he considers the experiment poorly designed, chides himself for stupidity, and at best considers the wasted experiment which has provided the new answer to be a kind of wheel spinning which might help prevent mistakes in the design of future yes-no experiments. This low evaluation of the experiment which provided the mu answer isn't justified. The mu answer is an important one. It's told the scientist that the context of his question is too small for nature's answer, and that he must enlarge the context of the question. That is a very important answer. His understanding of nature is tremendously improved by it, which was the purpose of the experiment in the first place. A very strong case can be made for the statement that science grows by its mu answers more than by its yes or no answers. Yes or no confirms or denies a hypothesis. Mu says the answer is beyond the hypothesis. Mu is the phenomenon that inspires scientific inquiry in the first place. There's nothing mysterious or esoteric about it. It's just that our culture has warped us to make a low-value judgment of it. In motorcycle maintenance, the mu answer given by the machine to many of the diagnostic questions we put to it is a cause of gumption loss. It shouldn't be. When your answer to a test is indeterminate, it means one of two things. That your test procedures aren't doing what you think they are or that your understanding of the context of the question needs to be enlarged. Check your tests. Restudy the question. Don't throw away those mu answers. They're every bit as vital as the yes or no answers. They're more vital. They're the ones you grow on. Time to switch to the psychomotor traps. This is the domain of understanding which is most directly related to what happens to the machine. Here by far, the most frustrating gumption trap is inadequate tools. Nothing's quite so demoralizing as a tool hang-up. Buy good tools as you can afford them and you'll never regret it. Good tools, as a rule, don't wear out. And good second-hand tools are much better than inferior new ones. Study the tool catalogs. You can learn a lot from them. Apart from bad tools, bad surroundings are a major gumption trap. Pay attention to adequate lighting. It's amazing the number of mistakes a little light can prevent. A lot of it, such as that which occurs in surroundings that are too hot or too cold, can throw your... If you're too cold, for example, you'll hurry and probably make mistakes. If you're too hot, your anger threshold gets much lower. Avoid out-of-position work when possible. A small stool on either side of the cycle will increase your patience greatly and your muscular insensitivity, which accounts for some real damage. Although the externals of a cycle are rugged, inside the engine are delicate precision parts which can be easily damaged by muscular insensitivity. There's what's called mechanics feel, which is very obvious to those who know what it is, but hard to describe to those who don't. And when you see someone working on a machine who doesn't have it, you tend to suffer with the machine. The mechanics feel comes from a deep inner kinesthetic feeling for the elasticity of materials. 
some materials like ceramics have very little so that when you thread a porcelain fitting you're very careful not to apply great pressure. Other materials like steel have tremendous elasticity more than rubber but in a range which unless you're working with large mechanical forces the elasticity isn't apparent. With nuts and bolts you're in the range of large mechanical forces you should understand that within these ranges metals are elastic. When you take up a nut there's a point called finger tight where there's contact but no take up of elasticity. Then there's snug in which the easy surface elasticity is taken up. Then there's a range called tight in which all the elasticity is taken up. The force required to reach these three points is different for each size of nut and bolt and different for lubricated bolts and for lock nuts. The forces are different for steel and cast iron and brass and aluminum and plastics and ceramics. But a person with mechanics feel knows when something's tight and stops. A person without it goes right on past and strips the thread or breaks the assembly. A mechanics feel implies not only an understanding for the elasticity of metal, but for its softness. The insides of a motorcycle contain surfaces that are precise in some cases to as little as one ten thousandth of an inch. If you drop them or they'll lose that precision. It's important to understand that metal behind the surfaces can normally take great shock and stress, but that the surfaces themselves cannot. When handling precision parts that are stuck or difficult to manipulate, a person with mechanics feel will avoid damaging the surfaces and work with the tools on the non-precision surfaces of the same part whenever possible. If he must work on the surfaces themselves, he'll always use softer surfaces to work them with. Brass hammers, plastic hammers, wood hammers, rubber hammers, and lead hammers are all available for this work. Use them. Vice jaws can be fitted with plastic and copper and lead faces. Use these too. Handle precision parts gently. You'll never be sorry if you have a tendency to bang things around and take more time and try to develop a little more respect for the accomplishment that a precision part represents. Thank you for joining me in this part of Pennsylvania. I hope that you've enjoyed your time listening to the podcast as much as I did putting it together. You can find text versions of Pennsylvania stories and essays at www.zensylvania.com. That's www.zensylvania.com. I expect to release one new episode each month for the foreseeable future. If you like the content you've heard so far, please subscribe, tell your friends, and leave a review wherever you listen to podcasts. I'd also love to hear your thoughts. My email address is zensylvaniapodcast at gmail.com, or you may wish to use the link in the episode description box to leave a voice message, which we might then use in this or a future episode. If you'd like to support the Zensylvania podcast, you can find us on Patreon. Thank you again for joining me in Zensylvania. It's a state of mind. <laughs>